Hello and welcome to In Line With Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first, with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world, and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to our series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment at one rather than at odds with nature. Hi, I'm Amanda Sturgeon. I'm the CEO of Built by Nature, which is a grant-making fund and a network builder around bio-based and mass timber um, construction. Can you elaborate a little on that? Because it's obviously so central to everything, what that means um, in practice. Yeah, so the carbon impact of building materials is... um, you know, a huge piece of the 40% that uh, buildings are responsible for in terms of, you know, carbon impact. Um, And most of our buildings, um, about half of them are built from concrete and about another 30% from steel. Um, Really high energy consuming materials um, and with goals to achieve net zero and reduce carbon and keep to the 1.5 degree target. Uh, we simply can't build with concrete and steel. So we need alternatives that have lower carbon impact. Um, Timber and bio-based are uh, such materials. And so what we are doing at Built by Nature is uh, we have an accelerator fund to um, uncover the barriers uh, to accelerating and scaling mass timber and bio-based materials. We fund um, collaborations, research, knowledge, and innovation. Um, we sometimes fund projects that are being built in timber that want to do the extra research needed. Uh, we've uncovered barriers such as in the UK with insurance, you know, and are working around, um, you know, pre sort of establishing an insurance-approved timber construction methods. Uh, So, um, yeah, we work uh, through our grant fund to unlock barriers and accelerate good ideas. And uh, then we also have a network, which is pan-European network, focused on connecting um, the very disparate sort of fragmented sector that buildings are and making sure that we can build collaboration, uh, cooperation, and um, also have people just work together in partnership more. So disparate and fragmented must be one big challenge in itself. I wonder if it's possible to even identify with that overarching kind of view and what you do, what the biggest challenges are. You mentioned uh, in the UK with insurance, and I know that came up in a panel discussion earlier, just what a great big challenge that is. Yeah. Yeah, after Grenfell, uh, any combustible material was um, uh, prevented from ha- from being um, built in buildings for residential use. It can still be used as timber Uh, buildings going up in the commercial sector in the UK still but the residential sector um, so and it became impossible to get uh, a timber building for residents residential use uh, insured so um, even though Grenfell wasn't made of timber yeah exactly I I think there's obviously timber had nothing to do with the fire yeah exactly and um, the reality of mass timber construction is that actually if there was a fire the the outside the you know, designed the 
the structure is designed so the outside would char, but it wouldn't like burn to the ground. Um, you know, it's a very different sort of technology to the old timber buildings that you know people might associate with fires of London or whatever in the past. So, um, but there's very much a myth that you know it's not safe. Um, it's combustible material. So, um, so we have funded uh, in the UK. Uh, War Thistleton Architects are a fantastic uh, architecture. A uh, firm that have been really pioneering timber construction in the UK. We funded them to do a sort of model, um, if you like, a set of, of timber details that um, are not, you know, ensure that, you know, there's no flammability and get them pre-insured by insurers. So is it a part of a wider problem, though, a reluctance, I don't know what it is, from insurers when it comes to sustainable materials and making changes? Yeah, absolutely. I think risk aversion. And uh, at the same time, I think those insurers also have pressures from their shareholders to reach zero carbon targets, right, as companies or um, in terms of the business they do. So they're, they're in a bit of a quandary because they're, they're going to have to, you know, pivot their business towards a net zero future. But but they're also not wanting to take anything risky or what they deem to be as risky. And concrete and steel buildings, um, you know, also have their limitations, but they've become so ubiquitous that, you know, really not questioning often, you know, some of their uh, failures or such. I mean, we've seen concrete and steel buildings fail, you know, for example, as well. So there's risks there. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely a myth with timber around uh, flammability or durability or moisture, um, you know, insurability, all of which can be overcome or are really not, uh, you know, not actually um, realized. But uh, we've got a lot of myths to dispel. And that's one of the things we do at Built by Nature, amplifying mm -hmm. stories, successes, um, places where the sort of barriers were overcome, mm -hmm. celebrating those as a network so that uh, people can understand that it's been done before. You mentioned that insurers have a pressure on the other side of being cautious to move towards zero carbon. It's something we're hearing a lot. I wonder if you could clarify or explain what zero carbon buildings look like. And is that something realistic to aspire to? Yeah, I mean, there are zero carbon building mandates set, you know, in many different corporations, states, counties, countries um, around the world. And um, I think they're going to have trouble achieving them. But, but what they mean by a zero carbon building is one that doesn't consume energy from fossil fuels. So it can, you know, have uh, renewable energy as its source. So it typically cuts electricity use or energy demand quite a lot, ideally up to even 80% through great insulation and, and uh, detailing and use of natural light, for example. Um, that's more familiar to people, energy efficient buildings or energy efficient techniques. So that's critical for a zero carbon building. Um, and then sourcing the energy from you know, renewable electricity supplies. But I think what's the hidden piece about buildings in the zero carbon puzzle is the carbon consumed in the construction and the materials that make up the building. Uh, it's been much less of a focus for the building industry than operational energy efficiency. Um, but there's, you know, a significant amount of energy that is used in transporting materials, mining materials, you know, concrete uh, requires intense heat to be produced. And so, you know, it's a massive amount of, of energy consumption to generate tons of concrete. And, um, 
you know, it's also realized right now, you know, we're predicted to build massively, especially throughout the global south in the next uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, and so immediately we'll be consuming massive amounts of carbon in what those buildings are constructed of, um, especially if they continue to be constructed in concrete and steel. So a zero carbon building would typically either, um, you know, use a timber or bio-based structure in some parts of Asia, that could be bamboo, for example, um, or a hybrid is often quite common where there's a hybrid structure between concrete, steel and timber, so that can really get quite a bit of the carbon. Um, the steel industry is making some progress towards, you know, recycle content of steel. It's an easier material to be recycled, reused, disassembled, um, but concrete's really a challenge in that regard. We must get to hopeful talk, but you said something earlier that struck me when you were talking here at the Closest Forum on your panel. It's one of the first things you said, there's too much ego in the room. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Well, I think, um, you know, with the realm of sustainable or regenerative buildings, there's, you know, been a lot of sort of bravado uh, around, you know, I've got this great idea or this great intellectual property of what we should do next. It can be an opportunity for people to be, I'm the savior of the world kind of, you know, gestures around um, their solution being the solution, mm. um, their program being the one everyone should follow. This is the answer. And the reality is to move towards, you know, regenerative or zero carbon buildings is what we've been talking about here at Closters. Um, that it's going to take a whole ecosystem of solutions mm. and ideas. There's not one, you know, magic wand, one idea that's going to solve everything. So what I've seen happen in the sustainability sustainable buildings movement is that people tend to even battle against each other within the sustainability movement too of like my idea is better and um, we just simply don't have time for that you know we're running out of time to solve I mean the 40 percent you know of energy use in buildings problem and get it down as much as we can over the next decade so you know, we need to be partnering, we need to be collaborating, we need to acknowledge that there's strengths in different programs and ideas. Um, and we can be stronger if we form a network and a cohesive, we've got enough, um, you know, we've got sort of enough of the traditional way we build already that we're fighting against, we don't need to be um, bringing ego into the room in terms of solving it. So, um, I did also encourage in my panel that we also um, turn to more women, uh, women and feminist, uh, feminine uh, leadership and indigenous leadership, because mm. I also note in these forums that it's often quite, you know, male driven who are quoting men or quoting books by men. And, um, you know, honestly, I think that's part of the reason we're in this mess has been a lot of bravado and ego around you know, I know where the human civilization should go next sort of approach. Mm. And I think I think a feminine and indigenous approach is quite different. It's quite a lot more collaborative consensus built. Um, it's actually listening really, really well. Um, and that's the foundation of good partnerships, I think. So I do think there's um, a lot of sort of feminine and indigenous qualities that could be brought to the table more in order for us to move to a stronger partnership and networked model. I mean, it's really interesting. And yes, my ears pricked up when you <laughs> said that. In terms of bringing those voices to the table and just in terms of the wider picture, as well as wanting to move towards sustainable buildings for a directly environmental impact, does this get driven a lot by 
a desire to connect to nature on a more natural level, on a more human level. So, you know, how important are aesthetics in that sense? If it's about living in a building that makes you feel as a person connected to nature, I wonder how important that is on the scale of all of this. Yeah, very important. I spent quite a bit of time focused on the concept of biophilic design and wrote a book, Creating Biophilic Buildings, um, really digging into that issue of, you know, ultimately, right, people tend to do things that are good for people versus good for nature or ecosystems, sadly. And so, you know, I think one driver to drive us towards more regenerative buildings is people feeling better than seeing a health and wellness outcome from the kinds of buildings we're building. And that has been demonstrated to be true. Buildings that connect to nature, that physically are made of more natural materials, um, and also are sort of really distinctly made as a result of responding to their place and their climate. So, you know, they're not a, a glass block, glass sort of, you know, box building that's in an incredibly hot climate where, you know, you're basically in a greenhouse, right, or or vice versa. So I think, um, you know, people do, there's been a, enough academic studies and research that show, um, you know, kids test scores are better when they're in well daylit buildings, you know, hospital patients um, heal faster. You know, there's lots of data out there that shows that, you know, buildings that connect people to nature improve our health and wellness. Um, and I think that can also be a driver. I've seen quite a lot of corporates who have picked up on that. They see the benefits of that in productivity and creativity of their employees. And so they're starting to bring it into their commercial office spaces, you know, that sort of natural material connection to place um, because economically for them there's a driver right to have healthier happier people um that are working more product productively so um yeah I think that's a whole driver uh so it, I, I feel like it's um in moving towards more regenerative approaches to buildings it's like a three-pronged thing it's got to be good for people and communities it's got to be good for nature and ecosystems and biodiversity and it's got to be beneficial to get us at least some way out of the climate change, you know, crisis we're facing. All of those things are much easier, presumably, to do in certain places, i.e. in the countryside and not in urban spaces, busy urban spaces with overpopulation as it is. Yeah, it's true. I mean, as, as cities and regions of the world become generally more urbanised, what usually happens is that we, you know... Um, you know, reduce the amount of nature ecosystems, damage ecosystems and open spaces. So I think we're at real risk as we increase as an urbanized, you know, global population of losing that connection to nature. Um, yeah, it's not easy to open your windows if you're on a, you know, busy, you know, six lane motorway or freeway. So um, definitely challenging the city context. There are some fantastic initiatives and programs coming up um, that are really addressing that at the city scale. Um, you know, there's a wave of sort of nature-based solutions that are emerging in cities, which is sort of taking, you know, stormwater systems out of pipes and bringing them into rain gardens and, and street wetlands. Um, you know, there's solutions that are like pocket city parks and mini yeah. forests yeah. that, you know, globally aren't going to probably add up to the amount of reforestation we're going to need alone, but they are an important piece of the puzzle. 
and one that connects probably people more on the health and wellness perspective than perhaps drives down the carbon that we need. But that's, you know, important of that three-legged piece. Um, you know, there are also some cities where we actually have more biodiversity really just from, you know, I think in the UK actually the the pieces of land left over at the side of the train lines have got some of them, the biggest range of biodiversity in the UK because they've just been left, right? They're just these leftover spaces with all kinds of seeds dropped and, you know, they're actually um, quite biodiverse. Now, some of those are probably weeds and maybe not ideal species, but I think... Um, the point of that is, is that we can really create biodiverse communities. Um, in Sydney, Australia, where I live, there's a plethora of parrots and birds and flying foxes, all of whom, you know, really rely on certain types of trees that, that have the right nectar and, and fruit for them. And, um, you know, they're still thriving in the city and they're kind of like the character of the city. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if, if tree canopies aren't pri prioritized, they will they will disappear. And I think connecting people to that, um, you know, one thing I also think is important that I've seen in the city scale is, is cities and areas of cities actually understanding is their tree cover and biodiversity shrinking or growing. Often they don't know. It's just one tree in an individual's yard or in a street and people don't think about it as the whole. I think we can leverage uh, data on sort of biodiversity, net gain and tree canopy at the city scale to allow city municipalities and councils that can be kind of cash-strapped to understand what's happening, what the trends are, and um, be able to encourage more biodiversity or tree planting or whatever it might be. Um, so there's a ton of opportunity in the urban areas. There's a ton of challenges. But I think it's pretty critical to not think, oh, it's just the city, so we won't you know, worry mm. about nature there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, talking about opportunity and to end off, hopefully, on a positive note, there are obviously lots of challenges. I'm sure we haven't even half covered them. But I wonder if you feel, not least being here with all these voices, you know, clamouring for change, but generally and more widely that there is a positive forward movement on this. Because I think, and you obviously have worked in this industry a long time, but I think it's taken quite a lot of time for people to focus, been focusing on very different environmental concerns. But is this now coming much more into the forefront? Absolutely. I mean, most cities, you know, are part of some kind of network, as many city networks, resilient cities and the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, C40 cities, lots of city networks. And I think there's lots of mandates and um, policies that have been put in place. I think the biggest challenge now is um, having the skills to actually implement them, uh, the collaboration and partnerships that I mentioned. I think the old way of doing things, the way that we've, we've valued buildings, the way we continue to value them, will shift pretty rapidly in the next, I suspect, five years. I think the I, I would never have thought 20 years ago when I was first you know, in sustainable building that investors would actually be leading the way. But the investor network globally is understanding the risk of climate change, the risk of nature um, destruction and biodiversity collapse. And they're now requiring projects they invest in to disclose what those risks are. And from that fairly small gesture, um, they're actually, that's filtrating through the developer network um, and through anybody that needs to finance buildings um, because they're having to put that risk in 
in order to get investment. And I think that will only increase. Um, so I see that driving a lot of change quickly because developers do not want to change. They're making money. Thank you very much. And they're quite happy with the status quo. So um, they'll have to be forced through their investors and through policies, I think, to move in that direction. They'll make small changes that don't affect their their profitability or what they're doing, but they're never going to move fast enough um, on their own. Uh, so... Yeah, I see some hope in the investor network, which I would allow me. I feel like I'm eating my words from a while ago where I'd been like, it's the investors that are preventing the progress, you know, so. Um, I th- that's definitely good. Yeah. And good. Is, has there been anything um, here that's not made you eat your words, but that's had a profound impact on you or changed your thinking on anything that you've heard? There's a lot of extraordinary voices here. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, a diversity of thinking... Diversity from sort of regional and global perspective, but diversity in terms of tackling the problems that we're facing. Uh, I think we just need to sort of bottle it all up and like continue to collaborate and work together and uh, really hear each other around how we're tackling the problems, the kinds of variations of the issues that we're seeing. Um, There's so much brilliance here and in the room. I just feel like I'm just sort of like taking it all in myself and um, really enjoying learning about people I didn't know existed. I think that's a huge value of this forum that we actually now all know about each other. So we have the opportunity to work and collaborate together. Well, hopefully this podcast goes just a small way into that bottle, bottling (laughs) up some of your brilliance. Um, Thank you so much. It's absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum, hosted by me, Hannah McInnes, produced by Claire Heaton, and supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment.